In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I'm Richard Moffat, based in London, and today I'm joined from Hong Kong by Robin Zhu, our China internet and newly launched Japanese video gaming analyst. Welcome, Robin. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Now, you've been busy with your recent launch, but today I wanted to start with China. All we currently hear is the bear case. Japanification, middle-income trap, high debt, property woes. But for me, that misses in many sectors, largely due to the sort of scale of the domestic market, that China is emerging as globally competitive or even world-leading in many spaces. In particular, one such area is yours, e-commerce. Could you start just by describing what are China's most competitive e-commerce business models? Yeah, sure. So I think you're absolutely right in saying that irrespective of the top-down picture, China has been one of the key regions in terms of the innovation in the internet space. You've had in China the birth of really two particular businesses in my mind, which have been particularly innovative or particularly now world-leading. The first is PDD or Pindodo. The second is Douyin. PDD essentially went from zero to what's now 18 to 20% of the Chinese e-commerce market over the past five, six years. Um, Douyin is the predecessor of TikTok, which has become a phenomenon globally. In China, it occupies now a very large proportion of the total internet time spent. It's also gone in the last essentially three years from zero to almost 10% of the Chinese e-commerce market, initially via the live streaming e-commerce format, which has taken considerable market share from incumbents. So those are the two that are probably most worth highlighting. I mean, amongst that, do you have like specific examples of the innovation? You know, what is it that, say, for example, PDD does so well that allows them to just deliver profitably at such a cheap price? Sure. So I think there's a few things that they've done over the years that have been particularly interesting. In terms of how the business operates, it's as an organization, incredibly agile, the belief of the company is that you religiously follow A-B testing on the back of user behavior, user data, and they iterate as quickly as they can and respond to consumer demand in real time in order to put the most desirable product in front of them. In terms of this, the product that they sell, whereas some of the incumbents previously essentially hosted merchants and especially branded merchants, PDD went down market and did a lot of work in the first instance developing white label supply chains with factory owners. You know, on the product side, my go-to example is something like a Crocs shoe, right? It's a reasonably simple sort of plastic shoe, but there is a brand associated with it. On the other hand, there's there's probably countless Chinese factory owners who can figure out the type of soft plastic that is used and sell you a comfortable plastic shoe for a fraction of the price. And so there's things like that that's on there. And you can make it sufficiently differentiated so that the IP issues don't become a problem. And on top of that, because it's grown so quickly in terms of user traffic, it's become or it became a very popular channel where merchants could actually just offload inventory and reach more consumers. And yeah, so they've done both the e-commerce thing that everybody else has done. But in addition, they've had some pretty unique features to their business. One of the reasons we've seen China emerge with these and develop these leading business models is the scale of the domestic market. Could you give examples of just how that is allowing PDD to deliver these very low cost solutions and still make money? Sure. So one of the 
features of the business model that they've kind of operated from very early on is this thing called C2M, which is consumer to manufacturer. Essentially, the, what PDD does is take user behavior data from their platform and they will go to the manufacturers and say, look, consumers demand such and such product. Can you basically supply this in response to the demand? And quite often the case, they've been able to find manufacturers or these white label suppliers who have been able to meet that demand either with existing or customized SKUs. And then, you know, obviously gone back to the market and met that demand and you've created some GMV as a result. Now, obviously scale matters in that process because the more merchants and the more users you have on both sides of the network, the likelihood that you end up finding a match and the scale that you then are able to achieve when, say, some percentage of the market, some percentage of their 800, 900 million annual buyers demands these things, the level of scale economy you're able to achieve for the manufacturer is also very high. And so by doing that, essentially, these manufacturers are able to offer you a fairly cheap price on the back of these large volumes. And how do PDD curate their offering in terms of manage the quality and make sure that customers are getting the product they ordered or the quality they're looking for that they repeat, you know, they repeat with other purchases? Yeah. So what they do is on the front end, a lot of the product listings are AI based. The merchant essentially says, I've got such and such products and this is what it does. This is what it looks like. And they are able to list these products on the platform. What then happens is PDD operates a very, very consumer friendly policy where essentially if you get delivered the product and it's not up to standard or it's broken or it's for some other reason, not what the consumer wanted, they've then essentially said to the consumer, look, if it doesn't meet your expectations, come to us and we will essentially act on your behalf. And one of the things that PDD has done over time is that they've made these demands of manufacturers and said, look, if your product is not up to scratch, then we will find you for that. And you've essentially had an iterative process over a number of years where they've upped the standards. One of the most recent pieces of feedback we've heard is that the user experience now on PDD is on par with, say, Taobao or JD's 3P business or the 3P parts of the JD platform. So, yeah, you know, over time, they've improved the quality of the product quite substantially and consumers, as a result, have trusted them more and more and have become happy to buy a wider selection of not just white label, but also increasingly branded goods on the platform. So how is this translated into market share gain? So now we think on our estimates, they're about 18% of the Chinese e-commerce market. That in 2018 was close to zero. And so that share gain has come primarily at the cost of Alibaba and partly, I guess, at the expense of JD. But yeah, they've taken essentially, what is it, close to 40% of incremental growth in the entire Chinese e-commerce industry at the moment and over the last, call it, 12, 18 months. To give us an idea of the scale, what does that translate to in US dollars, 18% of the Chinese e-commerce market. Sure. So on our estimates, we think they'll get to north of $500 billion of GMV for the full year. Now, Timu, as I'm sure many of our listeners will testify, is taking developed markets and Western markets by storm. Everybody I know is a proud owner of something from Timu recently. Some things are great. My headphones for £4 are fantastic. Razor blades, not so much. So... Can you explain to people how at £4 or £6 for a pair of Bluetooth headphones, Timu are still on a sort of operating basis making money before marketing? Obviously, there's a lot of marketing spend attached to the website, but 
how are they managing to do that? Yeah, so they're spending substantial amounts on user acquisition and getting the name out there, and they're still in this process where they're rolling out the business across essentially all meaningful markets in the world. But essentially, we think they're now break-even or close to break-even among repeat buyers in the U.S. The U.S. was where they first started. It's easy to forget that basically the business is only slightly over a year old, but it's going to hit something like, we think, $12, $13 billion of GMV. They've taken share in not just the US, but also Canada, Mexico. The UK is probably the most successful market after that. And they're now present everywhere else. The reason why the goods are so cheap, or or one of the reasons why the goods are so cheap, initially was simply because the stock on there was, a lot of it was overstock and stuff that merchants wanted to get rid of at whatever margin. But then what happened was by, I think, January or February of this year, Timu was so successful at attracting users and consumers to go and buy stuff that most of the merchants we knew had run out of overstock and actually had to put new inventory onto the platform. And at the same time, when that happened, what you saw was there was a step up in quality because this was actual kind of you know fresh new SKUs. One of the most important reasons why they are able to sell goods for so much cheaper than other platforms that they compete against is quite simply that these other platforms charge a very high middleman fee to offer access to the consumer. For example, we've spoken to Chinese merchants that sell on Timu and at the same time sell on Amazon in the US. And we get anecdotes like, well, I can sell the same cheap t-shirt for $12 to Timu and make a you know single digit operating margin. In order for the same merchant to make that same margin on Amazon requires him to sell that same t-shirt for $35 because that's how high they need to get to in order to pay for Amazon, you know, FBA, to pay for the commissions, to pay for advertising, to attract traffic and so on. That, uh, yeah, essentially the difference in price is Amazon is making a load of money in the middle. That's because even the logistics, when if you're not shipping until you've fulfilled your whatever 10,000 units and you're shipping them all en masse and then sending them out to customers rather than shipping every and dealing with every order individually. Presumably that's another margin shift right there. Yeah, sure. So the way the logistics works is that when you make an order on Timu, the merchant supplying the products is asked to ship your SKU to the Timu warehouse within 24 hours. At that point, Timu essentially puts it in a brown paper envelope and then sends it off to you know wherever you are, whether it's the UK or the US. We think it costs them about $10, $11 to do that. They do get a little bit of help from their logistics partners who lose, let's say, $1 or $2 on their behalf. But at the end of the day, the key difference is still that essentially the cost to Timu to buy that SKU from the merchant is much lower because they charge the merchants way less in terms of middleman fees and advertising and commissions and so on, such that the end customer can get their product for significantly cheaper than elsewhere. So you said that their logistic partners are currently happy to take loss. Is that just an investment, their sort of part in making this business work? Essentially, I mean, they're basically saying, look, we believe in the business, we believe in the model, we think that as things scale up, that the unit economics will improve over time. We do assume they won't, these logistics partners won't lose money indefinitely on PDD's behalf. For example, Lenovo earphones are very popular on Timu, right? They cost, you know, £9 or £7 or whatever it is. 
and they know that they will sell a certain volume of these things on an ongoing basis because they have the data, they have the kind of, they know what seasonality looks like. And they're able to ship a certain volume of these things to a warehouse in the UK or to somewhere in the US. And when you order, instead of shipping it all the way from China, they've already shipped 10,000 units of these things to Los Angeles or London or whatever it is. And the cost of delivery from that warehouse is much cheaper than from China. So I mean, that is another classic example of the scale effect and that we can all try and analyze data, but the data set and the scale of that data set remains a major competitive advantage to a lot of these businesses. So we've talked about e-commerce. What other business model do you think China is leading in and your sort of area will be able to export or is exporting to the rest of the world? Yeah, the, the other one that we're really excited about is video games, especially mobile games where the Chinese video game developers have been world leading. You know, Tencent, which we cover, is technically the world's largest video game company of all. NetEase, which we also cover, is also one of the top ones. And both of them had had most of their success come from mobile games. What's been quite telling in the recent past is that both of these companies have operated many of their top games over a number of years. In some cases, we're talking about five plus, seven, even 10 plus years in the case of one of NetEase's games. In contrast, you've really not seen the same level of success be achieved across the board for Western video game developers, right? You have had successes. Fortnite, for example, has done very well. Destiny's done very well. But you've also had a number of some of these games as a service or live service games essentially get shut down because over time they become untenable. So yeah, I do think the mobile gaming is something that China has proven itself to be particularly adept at. Genshin Impact over the last few years has been one of the biggest new IPs, biggest new titles to come to market and has been tremendously successful. And we expect China to continue to export mobile games and mobile game technology to the rest of the world. And where's this competitive edge coming from? The origin of the mobile market was essentially, if you go back a decade, essentially mobile was a way for game developers to get around the problem of piracy because you were by definition always connected to the server and monetization can happen while you're in the game. Now, they then had essentially a decade of experience building up these games, figuring out ways to monetize using the, the free-to-play format, monetizing through skins, through cosmetic upgrades, through in some cases, play-to-win mechanics, where these games have become very successful. These Chinese companies generally are fairly large in terms of their workforces and their ability to churn out bits of incremental content, new maps, new dungeons, new generally pieces of content within the games is significantly, yeah, there's significantly more horsepower within these companies to do that than some of the Japanese companies that we cover. For example, Capcom is two and a half thousand people, right? Tencent's gaming business is probably 10 times that number, if not more. And as you said, in terms of monetization, these games, for the likes of Tencent, they work as standalone, they just work as standalone businesses. They don't need to be leveraged across other product sets or other revenue streams. They just work. They're not a loss leader for anything. No, the games are very, very profitable. I mean, essentially, you have a software margin that is, gross margins are in the high double digits. Um, you do have costs that mean that your your operating margins are, call it, you know, 20, 30 percent in in some cases um but uh yeah these are these are very very cash generative very very profitable businesses i now get to tell my kid that i make money by playing video games and i mean it is a massively fast-growing space i mean could you just scale 
the town for us, you know, the growth of esports, the global game market, and just, you know, what sort of growth rate are we seeing from already large base? Sure. Yeah. So the total global video game market, we think, is about 200 billion US dollars of revenue. That doesn't really include things like esports, which are relatively small at the moment, um, growing very rapidly, but contribute relatively little in terms of revenues and so on. But yeah, we think the global market, on a normalized basis, call it grows in the mid single digits uh, per annum. Um, We do think that in the long run, this will continue to be a growth industry. I put a line in our recent initiation saying that, look, the long, long long-term growth driver of this business is just people's intolerance of boredom. And even if we one day live on Mars, I think the state of the art technology of the day will be used towards making and playing video games because people don't want to get bored. So I think that's the very long term. Now, in the shorter term, over kind of reasonable investment horizons, we do think of gaming as a fairly cyclical industry where growth is driven by new launches, new games, new gameplay innovations that sometimes break out across the industry. But yeah, you know, very fond of the industry as a growthy industry over time. And in terms of business, obviously some games are free, some games you pay for up front. I mean, is this just about grabbing our time and then you, the monetization will follow and it doesn't really matter how you monetize it? Or is there sort of a bit more science to it than that? Yeah, so there are two different types of games primarily. One, as you said, are these free-to-play games, predominantly mobile games. And then you've got the other kind of what we call AAA games or or sometimes AA games where these are more kind of one-time purchase driven where you pay $60 or $40 for the game and that's that's kind of it. Over time, the industry's figured out that you can make more money from people by charging them for in-game transactions and loot boxes and things like that. So the lines have been blurred a little bit. But especially for the mobile games, I think there is more of, especially for mobile games that monetize through non-play-to-win mechanics, where you're just buying skins or cosmetic upgrades of different kinds, there is a time element to this. A lot of people spend time in these games. They become essentially network businesses and... Yeah, over time, as people spend more time in these games, there's a probability where every so often somebody decides, ooh, look, look, that looks cool, and we'll pay something for it. And on large enough base, then you end up making substantial amounts of money. Uh, On the other side of the gaming industry with these $60 AAA games, it's essentially saying, look, here is essentially an artistic production of some kind that you can interact with. It has a finite life. In terms of the number of hours you can typically spend in the game without repeating yourself and it's, it's a bit like going to the movie or you know you're paying for an you know a netflix series or something like that now a lot of people listening to this podcast who are not necessarily as avid gamer as you will like me wonder well, why do people spend so much on in-game purchases when it doesn't improve the gameplay could you give some examples of what are the most egregious or crazy prices you've heard for certain things in a game? Just to give us a sort of scale of just how much money these businesses can make at 100% margin. Absolutely. So, yes, I mean, typically what happens when you go from charging upfront for a game to making a game free to play, one of my companies actually did that with one of their main PC games, um, is that the ARPU tends to go up because proportionately within these games some small percentage of gamers decides that it would be nice to stand out inside of the game visually. It's no different really to buying fancy clothes or 
accessories or jewelry in the real world, right? You are in an environment with other people. You can see them. They can see you. And, you know, whether it's vanity or something else, it's, you know, you do have some of these forces that drive people to, to make these purchases. And for the most part, they're not that expensive. You do have, obviously, some of these very extreme examples of people spending thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars within some of these games. But those tend to be the extreme. Those tend to be the kind of 1% where their wealth, I would imagine, for the most part, justifies or allows for that. But otherwise, if you look at some of these large user-based games, the unit monetization, for example, per hour of game time, it ends up being minuscule. Honor of Kings, which is Tencent's biggest game or the world's biggest mobile game, that we think the monetization on that is a couple of RMB per hour. And I, I used to make a joke about how you can play an entire day of Honor of Kings and it costs you less than a coffee. So yeah, it, it, essentially it's the law of large numbers, plus you've got some, I suppose, very affluent people who do this stuff. Do you have any examples of the sort of craziest in-game purchase you've ever heard? About a year ago, so when Diablo and Immortal came out, there were people who were spending sort of hundreds of, I think over $100,000 on essentially in-game skins and, and other in-game purchases that they were making. And there were these... So for those that are not versed, what's a skin? It's a cosmetic upgrade that changes the way that you look like in the game. Like you can make yourself look like different kinds of warriors or you can make yourself look like, you know, the minions if you wanted to, I guess. It depends on different games. But yeah, the, the, these are sort of different outfits for your character in game. What is it that makes a good game popular? Is that luck, skill, or a bit of both? I think it's... The complexity of developing a video game makes me think it has to be skill to a large extent. I mean, video gaming, I would argue, is one of the most complex things that sits at the boundaries of technology and really art. At extremes, I mean, you've got some of these large role-play games which are very story-based, have huge amounts of lore surrounding them, and in my mind, they're one of the highest forms of artistic expression. And You've got some games where it's like watching a movie, except you're the one driving the storyline and deciding what happens at the end. So, you know, these are complex operations. So AI is the latest tool for the game developers get back. Mm -hmm. Is this a game changer or is it just another tool? I think it's a game changer in the sense that it's massively accelerates what we're able to do in the video gaming development process. There's multiple steps in the development process where we think AI could be used to essentially improve the productivity of video game developers, right? Whether it's generating code, whether it's doing storyboarding, deciding what the storyline looks like and different kind of gateways for how the story develops to production, which is essentially the drawing of 2D objects and 3D textures and skeletons and rigging the skeletons to the textures or vice versa. And that entire process essentially today takes up 30 to 40% of the headcount and man hours of a game development process. Now, going forward, the main character, will, I think, will always be drawn by hand. You, I think there are elements that are critical to these video games that are best kind of developed by a skilled human. But then, you know, everything in a game needs to be rendered and designed to some degree, right? Like the tree on the side of the road or some loot box that you have to go and open. Like all of these things are developed and have to be programmed by somebody. And a lot of that stuff in my mind is just manual labor that can be that can be replaced or accelerated with the help of AI. Now in the very long run, I think it's inevitable that anyone 
that wants to succeed in video gaming has to embrace the new technology. And if you don't, you get left behind so that there is this survivorship bias where in the end we just decide, oh, you know, this was inevitable and it just became commodity. What really happened was anyone that didn't adopt the technology just failed. So yeah, it will it will become standard in some point in the future. But we think it's going to be a pretty large uplift to video game development productivity. So having looked at this space in great depth, who are the big publishers to watch? Where do we expect the best game to come from? Sure. I'm very biased, but having looked at the Chinese space and the Japanese space, I do tend to think that this is a lot of where the innovation is happening and, and where a lot of the best games are coming out. For example, this year, looking at 2023, the two hottest game development studios right now, one is probably From Software, which is Japanese, uh, publishes through Bandai Namco, and the other one's Larian, which was responsible for Baldur's Gate 3, which is probably, in my mind, going to win Game of the Year. And in the mobile space, I mean, the Chinese are, are very, very dominant. You've got Tencent and Eddie's, but you've also got Mihoyo, which developed Genshin Impact. This year, they came out with Honkai Star Rail, which has been a big success, even though it's a slightly smaller game than the earlier one. And so, yeah, look, I think, you know, when I think about the Japanese space, Nintendo is unquestionably top of the tree when it comes to ownership of IP in terms of just pure video game development capabilities. And then you've got From Software, and I'd probably put Capcom in that bucket as well, who have had a very, very successful few years. And then Larian has been on form. When I think about the Western developers, I do generally get the sense that the level of innovation just hasn't been there in the last few years. I've played Assassin's Creed Mirage. It's probably been the most disappointing game experience of the year. Two questions for you to finish. What is the best video game ever? I, your favorite. One last game. What would you play? Best game ever. I'll say Super Mario 64, just because it was quite early on in life, but it was probably the, one of the things that got me really into video games. I, I remember just playing it and thinking, this is amazing. Even to this day, in terms of innovation and what it could do at the time, I, I just think it's all the way up there. And what's the best video game ever for a publisher? I has made them the most money individually or created a franchise or built brand equity and put someone on the map? Probably Honor of Kings. Made Tencent, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly made Tencent in the last five years. Um, it's the world's largest mobile game. It has been for a very long time. Well, that's a good spot to finish, Robin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.